You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here. We'd love to get the opportunity to meet you if I haven't met you yet. Let's talk about baptism. First, a disclaimer. Uh, If you're familiar with church history, you will know that baptism historically is something that divides churches. Uh, There are many different perspectives on baptism, the mode of baptism, the the symbolism of baptism, what what is it, what's its its relationship to salvation, all of the rest. And we're going to dive deep into baptism today as a church. And uh, I I mentioned this disclaimer because uh, I recognize, I've had many conversations with people about baptism over the years, new people to our church. It's one of the questions, uh, maybe one of the top five theological questions I get when someone new goes to a church, they wanna know, what does your church believe about baptism? And I've sat down with people at coffee shops and I've had conversations and sometimes uh, the conversation goes uh, to the result where the person says, listen, I, I don't think we're on the same page. I think I'll find another church. Sometimes the person, uh, we have this conversation, they're like, sounds great. Looks like we're in alignment. I, you know, I, can, I can be a part of Hill City. And sometimes someone is like, I don't think we're on the same page but I'm still gonna be a part of Hill City Church. And I say that, I just wanna break the tension right here at the very beginning by letting you know, even if you don't fully agree with 100% of what I share about baptism today, I hope that you would know I'm not trying to draw a hard line and kick you out of our church or force you out of our church, but hopefully to challenge you to really consider scripture Uh, And there's going to be a lot of scripture today, so if you have your Bible handy or if you have notes handy, you can jot down some of these references. Uh, But one of the questions I would just ask you to to hopefully, uh, in all the diversity of the perspectives on, you know, baptism theology, is just ask you this question that I think most of us can agree on. Do you want to see more people baptized into Christ? Does anyone want that? I pray for this weekly. I pray that God would draw people to himself in baptism. I think about more important than even how you and I feel about it. It's one of the most beautiful things. I pray for my daughters to get baptized one day. Uh, I I pray, like, this is one of the things that I pray, like, on my knees with tears about, around, around Easter specifically. I pray that people would hear the gospel It would make sense to them. The Holy Spirit would do something inside of them and that they would respond through baptism. Uh, And more important than how you and I feel about this is how Jesus Christ himself feels about this. Remember Luke 15, the three stories, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. Luke 15, verse seven, Jesus says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And I wanna tell you, when we gather together as a church and we sing praises to God, it brings joy to God's heart. But even just one person who would turn to to God, turn away from their old life, to one person who is baptized into Christ brings more joy than an entire church singing praises to him. 
That's an incredible statement to consider from Jesus Christ himself. And I hope that we can agree, even if we disagree a little bit on some of the details. And I'm going to get nitty gritty in the details today on baptism. I'm going to get full on Bible college nerd on you today. Even if we disagree on some of that, I hope that we can agree that, that Jesus wants more people to get baptized. Amen? So right at the very beginning, I wanted to give this invitation. If you would like to get baptized, you can go to hillcityboise.org slash baptism. It truly is. If at any point today, during the message, you feel like, I feel like, I feel like that's me. I need to sign up. This is the best place to sign up. Uh, there is a Baptism 101 video. It's less than 30 minutes long. You can watch it. Uh, today's sermon pulls a few key statements from that, but it's not a repeat. It's totally different. It's, it's the top seven questions that people generally ask me about baptism uh, when they're considering it, and I just answer those in a video. And I would highly encourage you, if you haven't watched that video, if you're curious about baptism, uh, or if you feel like God is leading you to get baptized, that's the best place to go, hillcityboise.org slash baptism. I want to take you back. Here's a throwback for you. December 8th, 1998, I got baptized in my Blinky Bill koala shirt <laughs> at Farewell Avenue Christian Church in Fairbanks, Alaska, and that's my dad, who was the pastor of that church at the time, uh, baptized me. I was eight years old on December 8th, 1998, so you can do the math, a little brain teaser for you if you want to figure out how old I was. And to be honest, uh, there was probably some mixed motives there. We practiced very clearly what's called a closed communion, which is only baptized believers could take the Lord's Supper on a Sunday. And we didn't have the little gluten-free wafers. We had the good stuff. Women in our church, homemade unleavened bread. And it, it, I was just like, you knew it was good. And uh, so all my older friends, my older brother, the, the older friends, you know, that we would pass the, the, the uh, communion every Sunday. And I couldn't take it. I knew that as a kid. I was, I was missing something. And so to be honest, there was some mixed motives there. I wanted to be in. I, wanted, I knew I wanted to be like part of the club. And at the same time, uh, one of the first things my dad had me do is he had me meet with an elder from the church who talked with me about baptism, explained it to me, made sure I understood the gravity, the seriousness of what I was doing. I memorized some of the Bible passages we're going through today, I had to memorize them as an eight-year-old. It's the first time I ever had to memorize scripture was when I made the decision to get baptized. And I can tell you, even though my faith wasn't uh, maybe as deep as it is today, I certainly didn't know all the theology you know, then that I know now, all of the rest, I genuinely believed in Jesus as an eight-year-old. And I was baptized into Christ, and I never looked back since. And I always encourage parents with that. If, you, if you're a parent, uh, we don't practice infant baptism. That'll become clear with what I share today. Uh, but if you have a child and you feel like, well, I'm just not sure if they're ready, I always encourage parents, listen, your faith in Jesus doesn't have to be super complicated, but as long as it's sincere. And if you feel like you have a child, maybe even as young as eight, maybe 12, who knows, uh, if they have a sincere faith in Jesus. And a lot has happened in the last certain amount of years since I was baptized. And uh, I've certainly grown in my faith, 
but I've also struggled. Have I sinned since I was eight years old? Obviously, right? So, so there's struggles that come from the place. But there's also growth that comes from the place. And this is why this is really important. Here's our, our main idea about baptism, is that baptism is the starting line, not the finish line for faith. That's very important to understand why when I preach the gospel on a weekly basis, I always mention baptism because I truly believe it is the starting line, not the finish line for faith. It's a starting line. It's an early step of our response of faith in receiving the gospel. But it's, to be very clear, it's not a finish line. There's a long journey it's not like we just want to get people in the water and then it's done. There's discipleship. There's a beautiful life. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And he wants to use you to spread his kingdom. He wants to grow you. He wants to sanctify you. Uh, I'll show you this disciple-making chart that we looked at last week, that if we want to make disciples, this is the Great Commission, we're going to make disciples by going, by baptizing, by teaching. Baptizing would be the very first step of what does it mean to make a disciple? You baptize them. That's what it means. That's the difference. If you, I believe if you were to ask Jesus, what's the difference between someone who's a disciple and not a disciple, he would say, have they been baptized? It's the starting line of our faith. So with that, let's jump into our main teaching text for today. It's gonna be from Acts chapter two. We're gonna look, this is the, so we've looked at the Great Commission Go into all the earth, baptize, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Jesus, from that place, ascends to heaven. The disciples go to Jerusalem where they wait. And on the day of Pentecost, there are Jews from all around the world there who speak different languages. The Spirit is poured out. There's a rushing wind. It draws people to the place. And then the gospel is preached in many different languages. And then Peter steps forward, and he preaches an, amazing, uh, an amazingly convicting gospel message. So we're going to pick up right at the end of uh, the Apostle Peter's gospel message in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Peter says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, him being Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, there are many people there who weren't even around for the crucifixion of Jesus. But essentially, what, Paul, uh, what Peter is saying is, your sins, we're all guilty, right? Every sin, that we, every sin that we've committed has sent Jesus to the cross. And then it says this in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter and the rest of the apostles uh, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Have you ever been cut to the heart? That word there can mean literally stabbed. They were stabbed right through with the gospel. And I know sometimes we feel like, well, you know, how long does, if you were thinking about this, how long does someone need to, to come to church before they really respond in faith? How many times does it take? And I want you to hear this, that all it takes is once. Now, for some people, it might take many years and many prayers and many times hearing the gospel. But I believe, like, like Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we preach the same gospel today. Do you know that? that Peter preached that day on Pentecost in Jerusalem. 
And all, how many times did it take for the 3,000 people who responded that day? How many times did it take for them? All it took was once. We worship the same God, we preach the same gospel, we have the same message today. And I just wanna tell you this, if the, if, even if today you've never set foot in church in your life, I've seen this happen before, where someone hears the gospel, here's the gospel that Jesus is the son of God. He died for your sins on the cross. And without God's grace, we would be guilty, condemned to hell. But because of what God offered for us, his son to die in our place, we can be forgiven for our sins. And Jesus rose from the grave three days later in victory. And you can be raised to a new life in Christ. And I want you to hear this today. Do not harden your heart even if it's the very first day. If you get to the point, it's not gonna feel good to hear that line from Peter. This is Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, whom you crucified. That doesn't feel good. That cuts you to the heart. It stabs you to the heart. And I wanna tell you, do not harden your heart. We have that fight or flight, don't we? Right? That's what we do. We try and harden it. We try to close up. I don't want to feel bad. That's conviction of the Holy Spirit. Do not harden your heart, but get to the point with an open heart asking that question, what must I do? And if you get to the point, what must I do? I believe the Holy Spirit is drawing you to faith today, today. And I'm going to tell you what what you must do in a second. But first, I want to speak to those of you who've already responded. If you're a Christian in the room, we got any Christians in the room today? I hope so. It's a church on Sunday, okay? I want you to think about this for a moment, because this whole series is about God is calling every disciple to make what? Disciples. It's not my, I mean, it is my job as a pastor, but primarily because I'm a disciple that I should be making disciples. It's your job as a disciple too. Jesus wants, he expects every disciple to make disciples. Until he comes back, this is our mission, to go and to make disciples. Now imagine this week, You have that friend that you've been praying for. I hope you're praying for someone in your life who doesn't know Christ. You have that friend, and out of the blue, they text you, and they're like, let's get together. Let's get coffee, and you sit down. And it's like urgent, like something's been kind of eating away at them, right? And they, they they start the conversation before you can even order your coffees. And they say, can you tell me, can you just please tell me, why do you believe in Jesus? And this is that moment. Like, you want this moment, but you, almost, you kind of dread this moment as well. Because you're like, what do I say? And the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit of God who will empower you to be his witnesses. So it's this beautiful moment where you're just like, you're laying it down. And you're like, I don't, I don't even feel like I memorized that Bible verse, but it's flowing, right? And you're sharing the gospel, and John 3.16 comes up, and you're like, that's right. And you share the gospel with them. And then they ask you this question. They, they, they look at you, tears in their eyes, because the gospel has done what to their heart? Pierce their heart. And they say, I, I think I believe in Jesus. What do I do now? What would you do? Just be serious, be honest. What would you do in this moment? This demonstrates what I believe the disconnect in in many American evangelical churches are. Think about the typical responses. What would you lead them through? 
I pray that God gives you this opportunity. What would you instruct them to do next? That's the question that the church asks, that the, the early church asks Peter in Acts 2.37. What must we do? For many people, we would say, repeat after me. Let's pray a prayer. Repeat after me. That's it. Maybe we would give them a podcast. Hope maybe you recommend Hill City Church podcast. I don't know. Listen to my pastor. He'll tell you what to do. Come to church. Start going to church. That's what Christians do. You want to be a Christian? Come to church. Come to church with me. Give them a book. We might give them the Bible. Read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the Gospels. That's what you do. You, you, you're asking me, what must I do? Here's what you do. There, is there anything wrong with any of those steps? No, you should encourage that person to do those steps. None of those steps are found in the book of Acts. None of those steps. This is, this is very important. Look at how Peter responds to the direct question to someone who's been pierced to the heart by the gospel. What must I do to receive Christ Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Acts 2.38 this is the Bible verse I memorized as an eight-year-old boy. And Peter said to them, repent, and what? Everyone say it. And be baptized. Every one of you. How many? Every single one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Literally, it's all of you repent. It's a you plural repent in the Greek. And then it's a each one of you get baptized. There's a corporate guilt and a corporate repentance. And then there's an individual response of baptism that every single individual disciple is responsible to take. Now, the Greek word for repent is metanaeo, and that word literally could be translated think again. Do you know that that's what repentance is? You take the way that you have been living, your entire, let's say, worldview, and you reconsider it. You think again, and it's this idea of looking at your former life with, with really remorse, I shouldn't have been living according to the, the ways of this world. I shouldn't have been living according to the kingdom of darkness. And, and, a, and a good way to think about this directionally is if you were heading towards sin and death, you turn around. And I don't know a single Christian who would debate or argue that genuine forgiveness requires genuine repentance. Does anyone want to argue against that? Right? Because a servant can only have how many masters? One. So it is impossible to continue to pursue sin and death, a life of sin and death, and simultaneously pursue God in the kingdom of heaven. Right? No one's arguing that. It's the second one. Baptism. This is where the arguments, this is where the objection, objection, Your Honor, right? This is where it happens. It's the Greek word baptizo. I had to write a major paper in our Greek uh, in our, for our Greek final, 
my second year of Greek, on the classical usage as well as every single New Testament usage. It's used 77 times in the New Testament. It means to dip or immerse in the New Testament, or in classical Greek, uh, Greek, to overwhelm, to plunge, to sink, or to drown. In Aesop's fables, one of the examples is of a ship that drowns. Like the Titanic, we could say, was baptized to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, for that reason, the word for a regular bath, you would never use the word baptizo. You would use the word bapto to, if you were to wash your body because this, this word baptizo had this almost deadly connotation to it. So you don't want to have a baptizo. You don't want to just have a bath because, like, are you drowning in there? Like, you see what I'm saying? Like, it's this negative, but it makes so much sense. In the context of the baptism that we read about in the New Testament, because when we are baptized, we are, it's often used in the sense that we are buried in the grave with Christ. It's a full immersion. There's not a single example of baptizo being used for any kind of partial covering with water, certainly not a sprinkling or a spritzing of water. I don't have time to go full on Greek nerd, but there are many other Greek words for other washings, partial washings, inanimate washing an inanimate object, a sprinkling, a dipping, uh, a partial dipping, but baptizo is always like fully covered with water. You might say in today's language, baptism is a fully immersive experience. 4D, okay? It's meant to be one of those things that you remember for the rest of your life. Now, there are three perspectives on the relationship between baptism and salvation. Uh, I do get into this. These three statements are from the Baptism 101 course, but I feel like it's important enough for me to express uh, and go a little bit more into detail about. Okay, the first one, this is three, two extremes, and I'll give you what I think, okay? Uh, the first one is that baptism has everything to do with salvation. Can you say everything? This is someone who would say, like, baptism is almost like all you need, right? It's, it's the most important thing. It's the thing that saves you. Uh, and maybe you've seen Jack Black's movie, Nacho Libre. Anyone? I, by the way, whenever I reference pop culture, it's never like an endorsement of that. But I am tipping my hand like I've, I've seen it, obviously. Uh, so in Nacho Libre, there's this, it's a caricature, okay? He played, uh, Jack Black plays a priest or a monk or, or something, right? And, but he's in love with wrestling. He wants, to be a, he wants to be a luchador. And so he gets his buddy who he finds on the street, and he's got this huge problem because his buddy doesn't believe in God. He believes in? You've seen it too. I know it. He believes in science. And this is very troubling to Jack Black's character. And so he sneak attack, baptizes him with a bowl of water. And he's like, whoa, the father, the son. And he like baptizes him because it's a caricature. He believes in this perspective on baptism. As long as you do the act, that's the important thing. Signed, sealed, certified. As long as you've been in the water, and almost people have too much confidence in the, even, the act of baptism. If someone's walking, like not according to God, but walking according to the world, people might even look and be like, well, they were baptized though, right? The water, kind of like the waters, what saves them. 
Uh, churches who uh, believe this tend to speak of baptism as a sacrament, which confers grace. Uh, a, there's a sacredness or holiness to the water. And to be honest, we need to wrestle with this. We need to wrestle with real Bible passages. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, you see almost this, this kind of idea hinted at. We need to wrestle with this. Peter, the same apostle who preached Acts 2.38, right, who said that? He says this. Baptism, which corresponds to this, the this that he's talking about, he's just given the example of Noah and the ark, right? The ark being the vehicle that saved Noah's family through the flood of judgment. He says, baptism, which corresponds to that story he's just told, now saves you. Not Jesus saves you, not faith saves you, not grace saves you. He says baptism saves you. We have to wrestle with this. Now saves you. Not, he gives it a little qualification here, as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, okay, very helpful clarifications. If it was just the first bit, it would be very troubling to us. But some of you haven't like really wrestled with this passage. This is a very important passage to wrestle with about baptism and its relationship. It's at least somewhat related to salvation, so much so that Peter would say it's the vehicle to which, the wa- so the water being you know, not like the floodwaters of judgment, but the water of baptism being almost like the ark, the vehicle. There's this passageway that you move through, and baptism is the place that Peter says that that happens through. Now, he clarifies to combat this, it's everything, that it's the only thing, important thing, and whether you're willing or not willing, as long as someone sneak attack baptizes, you'll be fine because it's the water, right? He combats that by saying, now to be clear, there's an internal thing that's happening, an appeal to God for a good conscience. There's an internal reality that's, that baptism reflects. And by the way, it's not even your internal reality as much as it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives the power for salvation there, okay? So, okay, that's the first perspective. That's one extreme, though. The second and opposite extreme is that baptism has nothing to do with salvation. Can you say nothing? This is the perspective that I encounter most often when I get into conversations with people about baptism. Because you may have noticed, I talk about baptism a lot. And people, people would say, man, I love your preaching. Why do you talk about baptism so much? And I will say, well, tell me what you think. And, and essentially, this, this idea comes up, not always verbalized exactly in these words, but baptism has nothing to do with salvation is the perspective. People who believe this uh, believe that baptism is purely symbolic, There's nothing that God is doing in the moment. It's just a symbol. It's purely symbolic. Uh, It's an optional extra step. Well, yeah, you were saved years and years ago, but if you really, you know, it's kind of like the cherry on top. If you want to get baptized, great. If not, not a huge deal. And for those who do get baptized, uh, essentially the only theological argument is it should be done out of obedience because you want to follow scripture, and scripture, like we said, is talk, it talks about baptism a lot, okay? And I think the motive behind this perspective uh, is really good and pure, also rooted in scripture, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. I think this is the main reason why people have a difficulty talking about baptism and salvation. Uh, it's one of the, uh, the pillars of the Protestant Reformation, 
sola fide, faith alone, right? We're saved on faith alone. And it comes from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And typically what people would do is they would look at baptism and say, well, obviously baptism is a work. It's something that you're doing. And so if baptism is a work and you're not saved by your works, then baptism must have how much to do with salvation? Nothing to do with salvation. And I want to, let me state this really clearly. Uh, let me, two, two statements to be very precise about my perspective on the first mindset, that it has nothing to, everything to do in the second mindset. Uh, baptism without faith is an empty religious ritual that has no power for salvation. So let me state that really clearly. Now let me state this really clearly as well. The only work that can save, I don't believe, I believe 1 Peter 3.21, and I believe Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So let's try and figure that out, okay? The only work that can save is the work that Jesus accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. And there is no work, there's no work of righteousness, work of the law, or good work that you and I could do that could earn us even an inch of our salvation, amen? So I'm gonna state those things very, very clearly. But I don't believe baptism's a work. I mean, it's a passive word. There's zero examples of someone baptizing themselves. I had to have my dad do it, right? It's more than a work, it's an act of surrender. You wanna know what I believe takes more work than getting baptized is repentance. And no one's arguing about the necessity of repentance for salvation. Um, because it takes a whole lot more work, right, to run away from the old life that you were living before Christ. It's an act of surrender. It's an act of submission. And I believe it is a response of faith. It's not a work of righteousness. It's a response of faith. Not only that, there are many passages in Scripture. So I... There are many passages in scripture that make it very difficult for me to affirm the line, baptism has nothing to do with salvation. I'm just going to give you a few, okay? If you're taking notes, maybe you can jot these references down and reflect and wrestle with these later. By the way, you don't need to email me after today (laughs) to let me know that you disagree or that there's other perspectives. I'm very familiar. Okay, Galatians 3.27. Apostle Paul, interestingly enough, for as many of you as were, what? Baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So according to Paul, if you were to ask Paul, how do I know if I've really put on Christ? Have you been baptized? Colossians 2 verse 12, also the Apostle Paul, having been buried with him in baptism, in which, in the baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So how do you know if you've died to the old self and been raised up? Once again, the Apostle Paul would say, well, have you been baptized. Jesus in John 3, 3, 5, and just for uh, clarity's sake, some scholars would argue Jesus is not talking about baptism. 
I simply disagree. I think this is very, very clear evidence about baptism. Uh, in John 3, 5, his conversation with Nicodemus, this is where we get John 3, 16, all in that same context. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So how do you know if you've been born again? Have you been baptized? During the ministry of Christ, not only in the early church in the book of Acts, but even in the ministry of Christ, this was the first step in becoming a disciple. John 4, 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and what? Baptizing more disciples than John. So how did, how did Jesus make a disciple? What's the difference? So how do you know? Am I a disciple or am I not a disciple? Have you been baptized? And then in Mark 16, 16, which once again, full clarity, is not in the earliest manuscripts, but I think is uh, still true in Mark 16, 16, which is Mark's version of the Great Commission. Jesus says these words, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So I think it goes way too far to say, to, to go over the top, to say that baptism has absolutely nothing to do with salvation. So what would I say? Here's my, here's my statement, okay? Baptism has something to do with salvation. <laughs> Could I be any more ambiguous? Okay, baptism has something to do with, can you say something? So let's make a cake. Yesterday was my birthday, by the way. Happy birthday. If you didn't wish me a happy birthday, there's always next year. Uh, let's talk about baking a cake, okay? I like to think about, I, like to, I wanna give you this metaphor because it's helpful for me thinking about baptism and salvation and this whole thing. I think we get ourselves into trouble when we try to pinpoint the exact millisecond that somebody's saved. Have you noticed that? And, and, and I don't think we fully quite understand kind of the complexity of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And so I like, I prefer to talk about salvation as, uh, for the purposes of here, let's say that all of these ingredients that I have are the ingredients not of salvation, because you can't bake a cake of salvation, right? The only, salvation is a gift that only God can give, he can bestow, but... If we're saved by God's grace, and the thing that we receive that grace through is our faith, these are the ingredients of a saving faith. James, the brother of Jesus, says faith without works is dead. So it's possible to have a dead faith. And I'm just here to tell you, a dead faith cannot give you eternal life, right? I think this is the problem with this sola fide, faith alone concept from the Protestant Reformation is we all have our, in our minds the, uh, the definition of faith, and for many people, that definition of faith is a very flat definition of I simply agree with a, a set of theological facts. Well, guess who else agrees that Jesus is the Son of God? The demons. And they're obviously not saved, okay? So our definition of faith needs to be a whole lot more robust than simply acknowledging you believe a, a theological uh, set of facts. So these are my ingredients. And they're not just my ingredients. I think you read these all over the New Testament. And in fact, 
just to make it really specific, every single one of these I want to give you for this cake of a this cake. The cake is not salvation. The cake is a real faith, a saving faith, an, an actual faith. All come from Romans chapter 1 through 11, which Romans 1 through 11 is the most exhaustive treatment of the gospel in the entire New Testament. Okay? Uh, treatment meaning not like, obviously, the gospels are the gospel as well, right? But Romans 1 through 11 is the Apostle Paul basically making a case for explaining the gospel and how you should respond. And, and so I'm going to give you six ingredients, okay? Uh, the first ingredient for a saving faith is you have to hear the gospel. So we got our flower, okay? Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of God, Romans chapter 10, 17, uh, it kind of works with flour because there's little kernels of, in the grain and the sow the seed. Seed is the word of God. It, it works, okay? <laughs> Trying my best here. Uh, you have to hear it. You have to hear the gospel. How can you have a genuine faith if you haven't heard? Put, you know, put the, the flour in the bowl. The next one is you have to believe. We'll use uh, baking powder. It's baking powder, not baking soda, correct? For a cake, yes, I got confirmation. I'm not the baker in my family, but you've got to believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. So there is that, and for many people, that's all it is, okay? You heard someone tell you the gospel, you believed it. But there's this question like, okay, what, what now, right? I believe it, what next? Well, Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, not only should you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you should confess with your mouth God raised him from the dead. So that's just, let's just put some sugar, okay? That's the confession. You're gonna confess Jesus is Lord. You're gonna, you're gonna affirm it with your words. But is it just a words only? Because Jesus said, right? Not everyone who says, you remember this from Matthew 7? Not everyone who even confesses with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so is there anything more than that? Well, in Romans 2, verse 4, we learn that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. I think genuine repentance, and this is salt, salt in the wounds, right? Repentance kind of hurts a little bit. It's, it's one of the uncomfortable aspects of what it means to have a saving faith, is we actually allow the Holy Spirit to pierce us to the heart. And uh, that's why God is patient with us. Did you know that? God's, the, God, the delay of God's judgment and wrath is to give us the opportunity to repent. And then we have baptism. So some might say, well, in Romans 10, 9, and 10, Paul has said, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, that's, it's all right there. And I'll say, it's, the only reason he doesn't mention baptism there is because he spent half of chapter six mentioning baptism. He's already covered the topic, okay? So you can't just pull a verse out of context and say all you need is Romans 10, 9, and 10 to be saved, and I would say you need to read the Bible more. It's the water, obviously water, okay? I don't need to explain it to you, water. He says we were buried with him by baptism, and then the second half of that verse, I think also a very important aspect of a saving faith is we must walk, we must follow Jesus, you must walk in the newness of life. If you look at the teachings of Jesus specifically, there's an incredible emphasis not only on believing in him, but on doing the will of his Father in heaven. Read, read the book of Matthew and you will see this time and time and time again. Entrance into the kingdom. It's not that you earn 
You're, you're placed into the kingdom, but you demonstrate who is Lord of your life by how you live. So those are the ingredients of a saving faith in Jesus. And imagine that you baked a cake, but you didn't add water. You had all the dry ingredients. Oh, I forgot the eggs. Ah, oh, whatever. <laughs> Got too many, too many ingredients up here. The eggs, Trinity, Father, Son, I don't know. I don't know what it means. Okay. Next service, they'll get it. Okay. They'll get the refined version. So salvation is a gift of God, but every gift must be properly received. You must, you must receive the gift. And God is the only one, because he's the only one who can offer us salvation, is he gets to determine the terms of salvation. And I just gotta tell you, if, if God is telling us to get baptized or to walk in the newness of life or to repent or to confess, I don't wanna miss out on any of those ingredients for a true saving faith. And so why do we try and explain or argue away what God is telling us we must do to appropriately respond in faith? Mark Moore says it like this. He says, baptism, it's not a work of us. It's a work of God which initiates a spirit-led transformation in our lives. It is a gift we receive. It is an imitation of Jesus' death by which we crucify ourselves in absolute and abject devotion to our Savior. It is not our work for God, but rather his work in us. And that is way more eloquent than me saying it has something to do with salvation, but that's really what I, that's what I mean by that is something's happening in the water. It's not just a symbol. God is doing something in you when you get baptized. And the promises of forgiveness and the promise of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, the door is open for those promises by appropriately responding in faith to the gospel. And the beauty of what Peter says in Acts 2 is he says this promise is for your children and for all who are far off. So the promises of God transcend generations and geography. And so even if we weren't there in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, those promises for forgiveness of sins and the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit are for us today. Amen? That is good news. Let's continue through our text. Acts 2, verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and, they were at, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Whew, imagine if you were there. Now, what's interesting here is uh, Acts 2, verse 40 it kind of seems like, and then he said, repent and be baptized, and then people just did it. But there actually is that little phrase, he had to keep kind of like explaining it to people. Do you see that? It says, with many other words, he exhorted them. That word of exhortation is like challenged people. Like, no, you really need to do this, and he's trying to convince them, okay? He's trying to convince those people. Because for many of us, we have theological baggage from the church you grew up in, from your your 
family of origin, from some crazy podcaster you've been listening to. I don't know, right? We all have theological baggage. We all have uh, preconceived beliefs. You want to know people who had theological baggage is these Jews on the day of Pentecost, right? And so so for some of us, it's like, well, this is great. This is great information on baptism. If you've been a follower of Jesus, maybe even for many years, and you somehow skipped this ingredient, you might have this kind of, uh, this internal reaction like, I don't know. I, I don't know if, it's, if I need to go back or, or you know, I have these kind of hesitancies. I want to just point out uh, the, the, the reaction that the Jews would have had in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem. Richard Longnecker, he says this. He's a, a New Testament scholar. It symbolized, baptism symbolized, the break with one's Gentile past and the washing away of defilement. So Jews did practice baptism, not for themselves, but if a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, that's the only time that they would be baptized. So they did practice a kind of baptism. Obviously, it's not the baptism of Christ, but that's what they would have thought of. Does that make sense? It was only, and I'm going to use crass language here, for the filthy Gentiles. Okay? You want to talk about theological baggage. That's the mindset going into Uh, the early church. So when the Jews accepted baptism in the name of Jesus, it was a traumatic and significant for them in a way that our mildly Christianized culture have difficulty understanding. That's crazy to think. That's why I think that Luke records that Peter had to exhort them with many other words. Because there's this knee-jerk gut reaction, uh, uh uh-uh, I was born into a good Jewish family. I've been part of God's chosen people my whole life. How dare you say that I need to be washed? How dare you? That's only for the Gentiles. That's a pretty big barrier to gap. And essentially what Peter is saying is he's saying, listen, this is a whole new covenant. It's a whole new covenant. This is a death to life change. Something significant needs to mark this change. And yes, that's exactly what I'm saying is you need to get baptized. And even with all the theological baggage and barriers, 3,000 people get baptized on day one of the church. So here's what I have to say to you. If today's the first day that you're hearing the gospel, I want to invite you to receive it. I want to invite you not to skip any of the ingredients, to believe in your heart, to confess Jesus, to repent, to to be baptized, and to walk in the new life that Christ has for you. But if you're here and you have, let's say, all the other ingredients, the eggs, whatever they represent, okay? You got all the other ingredients of a saving faith. Maybe you've been following Jesus. You've been a Christian for many years. And I'm not even trying to convince you that you're not or that you're not saved, or anything like that. Don't hear me wrong. Here's what I would say to you. If you've, if you've never been baptized, just add water. <laughs> Did you get it? Just add water. Imagine a cake with no water. Is it a cake? It needs water, okay? That's all I'll say. And for many of us, we've been treating baptism like the frosting or like kind of the optional cherry on top, or it's just, the, it's just, 
It's nice, and I'm here to say it's a core ingredient of a genuine faith in Jesus. I wanna give you a few examples here uh, in the book of Acts, because the book of Acts is a little bit messy. In Acts chapter 10, you see a little bit different thing happen where there's a Gentile household, Cornelius is a Gentile, and Peter goes to him uh, to share the gospel with him, and the Holy Spirit, before Peter's even really done speaking, uh, is poured out on the Gentiles before they get baptized, but this is what happens. Peter says this in Acts 10, 47 to 48. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Because you might even say, well, I know I have the Holy Spirit. Cornelius had the Holy Spirit. I know I've been following. I know I believe. I know I have all these other things. And Peter says, even still, just add water though. You're still missing, if you've never been baptized, you're missing that. And somebody might say, well, okay, well, I was baptized as an infant. Well, were you sprinkled? Because it's not what the word means. Okay, we can talk about that later. Something similar happens in Acts chapter 19 where uh, Paul goes to Ephesus. And in Ephesus, the, there's a church there and the people were already baptized, but they were baptized with John's baptism, which is a different kind of thing. And Paul doesn't say, close enough. You've already been in the water once. Close enough. Look at what he says. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they received the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter 19... And I would just say this to you, because to someone who was baptized as an infant, you did not appeal to God for a clean conscience as an infant, however many days or months old you were. That was a decision. And I'm not here to say that there's anything wrong with that. And, and your parents maybe had a genuine heart. They wanted to you know, commit you to the Lord and all of that sort of stuff. But it's, it's a different thing than the New Testament baptism. And I'm just here to say the same thing that Paul said, is like, that's different though. That's fine, but it's different. It's different. So just add water. Just, be, just, just follow the instructions set forth to us in scripture. And then maybe you're here and you're like, okay, I'm still not convinced. I just wanna remind you, now this is a little bit out of context of the very first miracle that Jesus performed was at the wedding in Cana. And it was a miracle of water, believe it or not. They ran out of wine, and Jesus' mom, Mary, knows that Jesus is the Son of God. And she knows that he can do something about this. So she's kind of pressuring him. And he doesn't want to do anything. And finally, he relents. And he's like, OK. And then she says, Mary says to the servants, she says this line, do whatever he tells you. Which, by the way, this is a great framework for living your entire life to do whatever Jesus tells you to do. This is how I preach. I want to preach whatever Jesus, whatever is clear in scripture. If Jesus says, go into all the world and baptize people, this is why this is very, very important to me. Because I want to empower every disciple in this room to make disciples. And I believe that if we unleash our church to be disciple makers in our city, you will have that moment where you share the gospel with someone and they are pierced to the heart. And I pray that in that moment, you will be obedient to the Great Commission in that moment. 
And somebody said, well, what must I do? Sure, give them a Bible. Sure, invite them to church. But I pray that you would have the opportunity to baptize that person. And when the servants of Jesus in John chapter 2, the servants, they obey Jesus, he performs a transformative miracle, and the water is turned into wine. And I can tell you, even if you're not convinced and you have theological hesitations, I would just tell you, would you just do whatever Jesus tells you to do? Even if you don't fully understand it, even if you have objections about it, even if, even, even if it's not how you grew up, would you just obey Jesus and get in the water and go all in and die to yourself and allow God to do a work in you, not a work that you're doing, but a work in you and raise you up into a new life in Christ? Last week, we had a lady here who was here for the very first time at Hill City Church, and she signed up to get baptized last week. We praise God for that. December 4th, not today, December 4th, she's going to get baptized. And she's in that situation where she's been following. She's got all the ingredients, and I'm not going to, she's been following Jesus for years, but it's just one of those things where she, she never took that step. And I would just say, if that's you, go back and don't skip a step. Don't, don't miss this very important ingredient. And for you, if you're ready to be commissioned to go into all the world and to make disciples, I wanna tell you this, God wants to use you to baptize someone. He wants to use you to baptize someone. This is the greatest honor that you can have in someone's faith story is, is to be used. I wanna just read you one, one last example from Acts chapter eight where God uses Philip in this way. And the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot. There's an Ethiopian man who's reading from uh, the Old Testament. Go over to the, and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said to him, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And God uses Philip in this moment to explain the gospel to this Ethiopian man. And it's actually this man who says to Philip, there's water right over here. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip not only shares the gospel with this man, but the very same hour he baptizes him. And I'm just here to tell you, like, is that even a goal of yours? that you would be listening and walking by the Holy Spirit, so much so, like imagine, it's the same gospel, it's the same Holy Spirit, imagine not, that it's not even a friend of yours who texts you, but it's a stranger at a coffee shop this week. And you, would we be a church that is so on fire and obedient to the Holy Spirit that we're willing to sit down next to a total stranger because it's the Holy Spirit who says, go over and sit next to that person. And you just, you get into a conversation. Imagine a church that is so on fire and obedient that we're baptizing people the same afternoon that we meet them. That's powerful. But I just gotta tell you, we've gotta be willing to go over, to join them, to sit with them, and to be ready for God to use you to guide someone to Jesus, amen? Let's stand and worship God. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. 
You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.